conversation and with me in our virtual studio I have my amazing co-hosts and I'll let them introduce themselves. Hi everyone this is Ife. Hey everyone this is Onyeka aka Yeka'o. Awesome and we have two brilliant women I'll just let them introduce themselves. Um, Jamila do you want to start? Sure. Hi, my name is Jamila Abdullahi, and I'm the founder and creative director of Um I go by Jay Abdullahi on Twitter. And Jamila, you're from Ghana, and you're currently in Ghana? Yes, I am from Ghana, currently in Ghana. Um, I've worked across Africa and also in the U.S. and parts of Europe. Okay, hello everyone. I am Aisha Dabo. I am um, currently in Dakar, Senegal. I am from the Gambia, and uh, I work in development, and um, I'm an activist, um, a member of a network of African Af- activists for democracy, and um, my Twitter hashtag is Masha Nubian. I am glad, actually, and happy that you invited me today. We're so, we're so happy to have you guys on. So to our listeners, on today's episode, we are going to be discussing political elections in African countries. Political elections are typically markers of democratic governments, and they're supposed to allow citizens to participate in how their countries are governed. But however, like in most African countries that do have the democratic governments that is active and, and working, um, there's a general distrust in the quality of these political elections, and even more so like distress in the government itself. So that being said, um, when talking about elections, I believe that, you know, the political histories of those, you know, those countries where these elections are taking place should be taken into consideration because recently the Gambia and Ghana have dominated the media's coverage of Africa because the Gambia just had their election and Ghana also just had their elections stuff going on on the ground in these respective countries didn't just happen like you know when those elections took place like mm-hmm. there's a history preceding and setting the tone for those elections so i think it's like great to like take that into consideration so that being said i was hoping we could talk about you know in our respective countries like what is the political history um that sets the tone for um our elections you know from the people running, to political parties, to candidates, to the process. Okay, um, I, I guess I can I can start. Uh, thanks again mm-hmm. for having me on this podcast. I think um, mm-hmm. it's always great to have things that are not the African cliche. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's good stuff. Uh, with regards to Ghana's elections, uh, we've had elections since we've had democratic elections since 1992. Mm. And we're largely, we're supposed to be a multi-party system. 
meaning mm. we have a lot of political parties. I think there are at least four or five major ones. Um, but in reality, it's a two-party system because we have the two main political parties, the um, NPP, that's the New Patriotic Party, and the NDC, National Democratic Congress, mm. which have essentially been just changing hands at leadership. So they are the two main parties, and most Ghanaian voters are typically associated with one of the two. There are other smaller ones, but um, even when it comes to elections, they rarely even get 1% of the entire vote. So, um, so it's really those two parties. And what that means also is that it's always closely contested. So in, in the last, I would say in the last decade especially, We've seen um, elections being extremely closely contested. Uh, I guess the one that most people tend to refer to um, is the 2008 election. And this was just around the time that, well, both the 2008 and the 2012 elections. So the 2008 election was essentially a changing of hands. Mm. And so people were <laughs> were waiting to see if that would actually happen. And then mm. with the 2012 election, we had um, oil. So this was kind of after our oil find and people wanted to have their party in power because they thought that their party would be able to use the oil revenues better. So mm. both were very, very closely contested. I would say the 2012 one, I was not in Ghana for that one, but I followed it closely and I was involved um, with some initiatives around that. And it was very, very clear that that was a high stakes one and the mood was very tense. Um, and mm. with the most recent election, I think what the last decade, what each election has done is it's essentially tested some element of Ghana's democracy. So 2008 was to see how um, how hands would change from mm -hmm. uh, the NDC, if I'm correct, from the NDC to the NPP, and that went well. And then um, for the 2012 election, that was the one which was um, contested because after the election, we had our president Mills who passed away, I think mm -hmm. a year or a year and a half into his term. And so we essentially had to go into emergency mode and the vice president took over. And then we had the 2012 elections. And mm. with that one, with that one, essentially what happened was it was a question of uh, the Supreme Court. So it was a test of the judicial process to see how strong the ju judicial process was because they contested that election. And then for this election, I guess this election, the, the test was more of um, the test of the electoral commission because we had a new electoral commissioner. So it was to send for the first time a female electoral mm -hmm. commissioner, her name, um, chairman of the electoral commission, her name is um, Charlotte Osei. So it was- She's relatively young too. Yes, mm. she is. She is That's relatively amazing. young. So the stakes were very high, of course. Um, and uh, I, I'll be honest, like many of us were like, these guys are unprepared. But mm -hmm. they, they actually did a good job on a number of fronts. 
and this the 2016 election was also it was a, an election of like when it comes to PR and social media, it was also on that. It was a competition on that front as well. So mm. I guess that's just a quick summary of some of the elements over the past, mainly over the past decade. Cool. Thank you. Okay. Um, when it comes to elections, actually, in the Gambia, um, the Gambia is one of those countries that, ha- that had um, al- always had regular elections. Um, just after the independence under the first um, president, Jawara, um, they, they've always been a multi-party system in the country. It wasn't perfect, but having regular elections was something that regular elections and different political parties taking part of those elections has been something that's, that's constant in, in the country. Um, Jawara, the first president actually uh has been president was president until 1994 when um, yeah jami actually toppled him so then we had a trans- transition period with the junta um and after that uh, there was an election in which president jami contested and there were um a new political party called the udp um which is uh, until recently was the the main opposition party in the country. And then we had, um, there's one political party that has been in the Gambia since the first um, Republican under the first president, that's the Socialist Party, PVOIS. And um, they've been actually taking part in elections. So holding elections has has never been an issue in the Gambia. Is the problem has always been how fair was those elections? Were was the field a level playing field? You know, were there intimidation or not? How transparent is the system? Those were more the concerns than having regular elections. So um, on the Jami, uh, President Jami, there've been more for the past ten years. There've been more political parties. Um, in the opposition, even though they represent um, them being representative of a huge percentage of people could be questionable. But the fact that they have been able to create, um, to set up their political party has been something that's welcomed. So those political parties and the four major ones um, are the ones that created the coalition that won the elections on December 1st. So until now, the main problem, as I said, was the process, the electoral process from the, from the registration up to the voting. Uh, I always say that um, when uh, election observers come to a country, they just go there two days or three days or a few days before the election and uh, actually monitor the, 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 the day of the election and then a few days after they leave. My belief is the election starts when the registration begins and you should be able to follow the whole process yeah. to be able to state if an election was free and fair or not and what are the technicalities, yeah. what are the implications. So that's something I just wanted to raise because there have been elections in the Gambia where um, observers have said that everything was free and fair while they didn't know what happened months mm-hmm. before. So that has always been an issue. Mm-hmm. So um, with the last election, actually, what changed is um, 
Jamie has been around for 22 years and he felt so much emboldened that in 2005, he decided to change the Electoral Act and passed it, making everything difficult. Oh, yeah. Yeah, making things difficult huh. for the opposition to um, to even exist as political parties because each and every political party was supposed to have a representative in one of the seven regions in the Gambia and have uh, not only a representative, but also have local, um, you know, executive bureaus in each region and um, follow a lot of many other requirements to be able to exist. Fortunately, most of the, the main political parties like PDOIS, UDP, and the ruling APRC of Jamie were able to fulfill those criteria. What he never foresaw was the fact that um, the opposition could have joined together and form a coalition and mm. have representative. Because another issue is funding. Uh, the political parties are very uh, don't have the money, and Jamie uses mm. has been using state funding, uh, state actually resources for his political uh, activities, and. Um, wow. So that has always played against the opposition because they don't have the state resources to use. And this time they came together as um, they had a convention and someone was chosen, that's the current president, Adam Abaro. And actually Gambians from all quarters and from all over the world contributed. One dollar, five dollar. I mean, everyone contributed to make sure that, you know, the opposition was able to have representative in each and every uh, polling station. Uh, mm. at the um, counting studying centers and that they did uh, voter education during the registration process. They were voter education and even up to the day before the election, people were sensitized at grassroots at all level in the urban area, in the rural area for people to go out and vote and make sure that they vote and they preserve their vote. So on the eve of the ele- um, on the eve of the election, um, there was a police. The IGP Inspector General of Police issued a statement um, asking people to just vote and go home. If not, they risk facing uh, being arrested because they don't want anyone gathering around the polling station. But some people were able to get out and go and secure their vote and make sure that the counting of the votes were, you know, transparent. And what what uh, Jamme I can call it a mistake he made was that he, he actually before in the elections in the Gambia the the, 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 the uh, votes are never counted at the uh, polling stations they're always taken to the tallying center of the yeah. area and this time he said that each and every vote will be counted uh, at the given polling station so that's where it would have been difficult for him to rig or change the the data by then. Mm-hmm. So that helped and, the and, 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 and also, Sorry, sorry go, ahead. go ahead. No, you can go no, you can go ahead. Um I noticed that I don't know if this is actually true or mm-hmm. but you guys didn't actually use paper votes. You use like um marbles. like colored yeah, colored marbles. Has that yeah. how is that what it's always been or is that true? Yeah. It's true. That's that's how Gambia has been voting since after independence. Actually, they're transparent marbles, and you have drums. Um, the drums actually um, have the color of the political party or the candidate. So the ballers are put in the in the boot, in the voting boot, 
and you go there and you put the marble in one of the drums. So when you put uh, drop the marble in one of the drums, there is a bicycle uh, sound actually that shows that this person has voted. So then everyone will know that you put the marble in the drum and you come out and then you dip your finger in the ink and that's it. It's a very quick process. And um, each of the drums actually will have the party's uh, color and then you will have the picture and the logo of the political party um, pasted on each of the drums. And also, actually, I believe, even though many people don't agree with me, but I think that in a country with a high illiteracy rate, that's a good mm. system to vote. Because you won't say that, well, um, this ballot box actually is tampered with because there's a sign here or there's a sign there. You just go in, you know the color, and you drop it. It's easy yeah. and everyone can do it. What not everyone agrees, but I think it's a it's a good system. That's actually that it's pretty you know unique and I mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought of it mm-hmm. you know so it's very innovative I, I and I agree that with given <laughs> given you know the literacy level and yeah that's that's really cool and for some reason the media the stories about it made it sound as if it was as if this was a new thing that you just did for this election. They made it sound like that's the reason why Jamir was defeated was because you voted with marbles. But that's how you always voted. That's how we always voted. <laughs> I imagine mm. people and yeah, like who fa- you know how can you write an article? Like who who are you consulting? How are you fact checking? Mm-hmm. I can't. Hmm. Cool. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. Um, so Nigeria's own political, you guys will have to like chime in. Um, yes, fill in the blanks. <laughs> <laughs> but essentially, we had, you know, since independence, we had a couple of years of civilian rule, mm-hmm. and there was the civil war. Mm-hmm. Wait, wait, did yeah. the civil war? Well, okay, was it? You see, I'm actually terrible at my Nigerian. Oh, okay. Yeah. So we had a civilian rule. Then yes. there was the civil war. And I believe we had military rule after the civil war. Yes? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So, you know, the military took power and there were coups upon coups upon coups. Mm-hmm. Essentially, we had military rule until 1999. Mm-hmm. Yes, guys? Yes. Yep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Teamwork. Teamwork. Yeah. Check. yeah. So we had we had military rule until 1999 where um this guy who was before um Abdul Salam? Abbasanjo. No. Like in no, Abbasanjo was our first. Yeah, okay, yes. Ah yes, Abacha. Who said Abacha? Me. Oh my god. Yeah. Okay, but <laughs> <laughs> Actually, actually, no, actually, we have, we had, actually, well, there have been rumors that Jamie had Abacha's mon- money, so <laughs> yeah. Gambia people know Abacha. Yeah. Well, he can keep the money, Abacha is long gone. That's an interesting one. Yeah. So when Abacha died, because, like, I think Abacha was our most, maybe, maybe when not most, but, killed. like, in our oh. own, in our yeah. own, like, lifetime, Sha, he was, that's the dictator we know. Mm-hmm. who were really scared and when when abacha was dead people couldn't believe it they were like oh is he really dead like you know and there was jubilation and whatever 
then another military guy came after Abdul Salam. Then he um, handed over power to civilian rule. And our first civilian president was Olusegun um, Obasanjo, who also used to be a military um, mm-hmm. head of state. He used to be yeah, a military head of state. So since we got, since we moved, transitioned to civilian rule, we've essentially had an unspoken rule where power rotates from the south, like north and south. So Nigeria is roughly divided into the Muslim north and the Christian south, but it's not, yeah, so roughly divided. And um, there's this unspoken rule that power rotates, essentially. And um, we have, again, we're supposed to be multi-partied, but we have the... For the longest time, we had like one party. Like PDP was the only, you know, there were like small opposition parties, but PDP essentially was the party. So PDP won the first. What does PDP stand for? People's Democratic Party, yes. So those are the ones. That's Ambassador's party. That's the one that won the the first two terms. Then there was some story about how Ambassador like wanted legislature to be changed so that he could have a third term and people were like no so Obasanjo mm-hmm. left mm-hmm. yeah Obasanjo left and there was a um we had our another election what year was that 20 2007 yeah. yeah yeah so 2007 there was another election and um PDP won again with mm-hmm. Yaradwa yeah yes mm-hmm. and similar similar to Ghanaians Yaradwa like died a year and a half into the yeah. like two that's, years. So he was it's crazy. So the unspoken rule, so he became the like northern, you know, the north the president from the northern part of the country. Mm-hmm. So he died and there was this whole like drama of we didn't even know when he like they tried to keep it a secret. So it was just smelly, very uh. <laughs> anyway, so good we work. Have same de- debates here. Oh, yeah, yeah. It was like three or four presidents. And a Zambia as well. This priest who had predicted that seven African leaders would die or something like that. You know, Ghanaians were very religious, so yeah, they had to bring that one into it as well. Um, but that period, it was like back to back to back. Hmm. Yeah. Oh, wow. yeah, and like the, just people were being scheming, you know, very secretive, and they were just scheming. So the president died. I think it was more than a month before Nigerians like could confirm that he had died or something. Very anyway. So Goodluck became he was the vice president. He became the president, and there was some tension about oh, it's not the and Goodluck is from the south, and there was some tension about oh, it's not the south's time to rule yet. Like you know, mm. Goodluck shouldn't have. Shouldn't have like what he was anyway. So he was president for the rest of that term. Then there were mm-hmm. another set of elections where Good Luck won. Uh-huh. And at that time, Buhari had our current president. Buhari had like was part of the opposition party um, uh-huh. the, the first couple of times. And so Good Luck won. Then because technically his first term was Yaradwa's term, he ran for re-election, uh-huh. which he lost, and Buhari won. So oh. during that, that, that was our last election, which was in 2015, mm-hmm. yeah, which was in 2015. So that was a very, and people were really happy about that election because <laughs> PDP had been ruling the country since 1999. Yeah. So they were such a, it was like, yeah, 
So the opposition finally won and people were happy and they were like, oh, change has come, change has come, whatever, whatever. And it, it, <laughs> um, and Buhari, our current president, used to also be a military head of state. So it feels like we're just recycling, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Our relationship is in with the Johns, although that has ended now. But, <laughs> oh, yeah. All yeah. our presidents have had the name John. So, yeah. so one of the one of the contenders this year, he, he was making a joke during the presidential debates. He's like, isn't the choice clear? My name has John. His name mm. What are we? Goodbye. What are we doing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, Luca, over here. Um, every time I think of this, like Nigeria's democracy, I always have to go as far back as 1914. Um, and so when Ife is talking about like um this power struggle between the north and the south, um, Nigeria was not a country officially until 1914 and that was when there was an amalgamation of the northern protectorate and the southern protectorates and so very often um, especially with the older generation you have and i think we talked about this before you have people who will refer to themselves as being like indigent from a particular tribe more than they would um carry on the tag of being nigerian so you will always have this power struggle because people don't necessarily um or will not first of all, identify as Nigerian. They will identify, first of all, as whatever tribe that it is, just for context. Mm-hmm. But yeah. And this is the thing, you know, just to add to that. So I think that definitely provides much needed context when talking about Nigerian elections or just like Nigerian politics. Because if you don't have the understanding of the different tribes, mm-hmm. um, you kind of miss out on the context. Um, and even... There was a huge, I forget during whose term, when a lot of Igbos in the north were killed. And, you know, just things that adding to, like, the tribal tension and rife and how that spills into politics. And when people are voting, they're voting Mm -hmm. for the person, you know, the candidates who's from their tribe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that that all, like, goes into consideration when talking about um, our elections. Yeah. Wow, that was wow, great, great answers, great context. So moving forward, you know, all that being said, you know, what are some challenges that our respective countries face when it comes to like elections? I know, Aisha, you were saying earlier that, you know, the election doesn't begin voting, it begins from registration. Um, yeah. But are there some challenges that come to mind um, when we think about um, our political elections. I think civic education in any country is very important. And it's important for each and every citizen to know what he, what are their rights and what are their responsibilities as citizens. And we tend to leave that to, I think civil society could do more because most of the time we tend to leave that to politicians who use that to their advantages by giving um, the information to the masses, but for them to vote for a particular party, but not necessarily to enlighten them and give them, you know, the information they need to be able to make informed decisions. I think that that's very, very important in not only during elections, but for at least a citizen of age to know what whatever your, you know, status or you went to school or not, you should know what is your role and you should know what is your what are your responsibilities. And that actually for me, when you have all those informations, then when there are elections or when there 
registration process, you should know that you have, as a citizen, you might decide at the end of the day not to go and vote, but you can go and register and have your voters card. And then you, by having, by knowing what is expected of you and what is expected of the, that representative you are electing, then you will be able to hold that person accountable. Because those, these are things that we don't necessarily know. Um, and we, when, even when you know, it's because you read it somewhere or you inquired. But I think um, our civic education, uh, I'm saying our because I'm thinking maybe mostly in other African countries also, they might have the same challenges. Um, we, they, they should be a better job than saying that this was the first president of, you know, this country. You know, he got us independence and the, um, actually we were colonized by the French or the British or the Portuguese. But I think there are more important issues that that should be addressed as well when talking about um, civic education. And one thing also that um, um, people tend to... I, I, I was reading something about um, political parties just after independence in Africa. They had these... They were structured and had education... Um, actually, information sessions for their members. So they have this um, ideology or rules and regulations and everyone will follow the party line but more and more actually in africa we don't necessarily have ideologies which is not bad you go, you take what is good from different ideologies and make it the, the 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 constitution of your political party is good but at least i believe party discipline also is um is very important because what we tend to have is loose wolf around in most big political parties who are you know, not yeah. It's uh, they have a freedom of expression, but I think they should, you know, better structure and know what they believe in and po as political parties. Because I think that most of the crises that we have in Africa are one way or the other related to elections, and it's really a shame that after 50 years of independence, we're still still struggling with such issues. You know, instead of concentrating on um, development or healthcare or education for the masses. We are more focused on political crisis, and that only happens when, when, when we have elections. So I think each and every one of us actually need to look at what we are doing individually. The government or the state can, can't do it alone. I mean, I think each and every one can contribute in the way you can by sensitizing your community in your neighborhood. And maybe that will inspire others and it will expand. Because um, having crisis for elections or for one person thinking that he or her, uh, mostly he, <laughs> because luckily we, <laughs> we don't have uh, many women, because he thinks that he is the anointed one and he's the one who should rule actually not as a head of state in a democratic um, um, uh, setup, but as a ruler actually. And believe that this is a dynasty for him and his family and act mm -hmm. like we are no longer in a democracy but, but uh, in a kingdom type of system. So these are things that we need to uh, look into actually because it's all one way or the other. It relates to politics, it relates to, to, to elections, so there are a lot of things to consider. Um, I think we have a, pretty much similar um, challenges. In, in Ghana, civic education is definitely a big challenge. Uh, in the 2012 elections, I worked on a project called Ghana Decides, and essentially what we were doing, it was a social media project, but we were trying to 
educate and also raise awareness with regards to elections, really. Um, trying to inform the electorate about the political parties and the candidates and the policies, especially the issues as well. Um, and what we found, part of what we did was we did a we went to nine out of the 10 regions in Ghana and we kind of interacted with civil society, but also traditional leadership and then um, the groups, groups that are particularly vulnerable. So like women and youth groups and differently abled groups and so on. And it was very, very clear that most of them didn't have any inkling about what they were supposed to do on election day. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think for the most part, that element had been, it was just assumed that the political parties would would do, would do handle that and get up to speed on those elements. Um, mm-hmm. But then when that, what happens then is it tends to be a bit biased because <laughs> once the ballot paper is out, they're going to tell them, make sure you vote on the third line or something, which would be the party's line. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to giving them information about how to vote and leaving the decision to them. So that was, it was very, very clear. And in the 2012 election, there was a pretty high incidence of spoiled ballots. I'm forgetting the number now, but just for context, it was the, the number of spoiled ballots were higher than the combined number of votes for the smaller political parties. So that gives you a sense mm-hmm. of just how many people just don't know how to vote. Um, so when you say mm-hmm. spoiled ballots, what, what does that mean? Just, you know, does it, does it look like somebody, you know, an effort of rigging? Were people like spoiling the ballots on purpose or no. were people just not, they just don't, didn't know how to vote. So it was like um, voided. Yeah. Or... yeah. So spoiled ballots, essentially, it's like if you're supposed to vote um, and let's say you're supposed to put your thumbprint in a very specific box next to the candidate you're voting for if you put your thumbprint and it crosses over two lines mm. like it crosses over a line so between one box and the other they can't tell who you actually voted for so it's, it's voided it becomes a small ballot meaning I see. it's not valid um so that's like just one example of the criteria there are a bunch of criteria that goes into determining that so civic education definitely was a big thing and this year this year as well, I had written a piece in the lead up to the election about some of the, the issues that needed resolving. And as I mentioned, we had a new uh, chairwoman of the Electoral Commission. And so they had a somewhat of a slow start. And some would say mm-hmm. that they were focused on things that for some people were not the most important, like rebranding the logo of the EC and so on. Um, so a month to the election, you got the sense that it was still very quiet, even in Accra. Mm-hmm. In Accra, it was it was pretty um, it was still pretty quiet for a while. Yeah. So so in Accra, you couldn't really get a sense that there was an election coming up. That's just a mm-hmm. month to it. Um, and the question people were asking was. So when I normally you'll have like adverts on TV about how to vote and radio spots and whatnot, uh, but you didn't have that many this time around. So there was a bit of skepticism about whether the EC was actually ready and whether they mm. would be able to educate people ahead of the election. 
Uh, but this this year actually was very. What's the word I'd use? It kind of turned a lot of assumptions on its head, because I think people were just fed up. <laughs> so, so a lot of the assumptions about, let's say, voter turnout. I think my prediction on voter turnout rates was pretty much. It was it was within the margins I mentioned. It was lower than the previous years, but it, it wasn't that bad. And mm. when it came down to how to vote, the EC actually took the time to make some changes uh, to, let's say, the ballot papers. They changed the format of some of the ballot papers to make it easier to for people voting to know which box belongs to which candidate, and also mm. for the people who are counting. I mean, there's like a whole technicality involved, but I'm not I'm not at liberty to share that information. So I'm sure it will come out eventually. Some of what they put in place, um, but it was it's really interesting to see that they actually took the time to address some of the issues that might have been highlighted in previous years. So people actually came out to vote, and mm. I know that uh, they use social media a lot. So on social media, which this could be both a pointer to the fact that civic education wasn't done well, but then to the fact that civic education could be done through online mediums for a certain segment of the population, of course. Uh, so many people didn't know that they could show up at the, the polling station with just a regular ID. They didn't necessarily need their voter ID cards. Mm -hmm. If they were already registered, their details were already in place and they had a photo of them as well so all they needed to mm. do was have like any id government issued id to show that just to, to confirm so mm. many people had lost their ids or they didn't know where it was or whatever and it was the ec who actually put out that information they were very active on twitter so they put out that information on twitter and some of us shared it on whatsapp and so on and that ended up changing people's minds to actually go vote because the main issue was they thought, oh, I don't have an ID, so I don't know if I can vote. Mm. And, and that was clarified. So this is just an example of how very simple information um, mm. disseminated in the right manner can actually help encourage more civic participation. That's great. I was. This is Ife here. I was about to ask, you know, what what electoral reforms the gun the did Ghana incorporate for this election? Because um, I have friends in Ghana who are saying, oh, this, this election was much fairer, there was less rigging, and it was because of the electoral reforms that, are, that came out of the last time where there was, where your Supreme Court actually had to, you know, step in. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I know that they had... Um I think some of them were not so much reforms as much as enforcement. Okay. So I think some of these elements had already, like provisions had already been made for some of them. So, for example, the the number of officers who were supposed to be at each polling station, meaning representing, let's say, the different political parties mm -hmm. and also observers and so on. Um, and then making sure that those people were actually in vantage positions where they could confirm or deny what was going on. So that was an example. Another one was, and I think the most important one had to do with the, we called them the pink sheets. Mm 
And essentially what those were are the sheets where they do the collation of the results from the different um, stations. Mm -hmm. And in the past, they would collate the results and then I think send it over to, they called it the strong room, but it was essentially like the headquarters, the election headquarters where here in Accra, where they were manning all of these operations across the country. And they would just send it there and then have it validated. But this time around, they, the, the political parties actually committed to ensuring that they had reps at each of these stations who could validate the results at the station before it went to the collation center where they would then put it together and say, okay, in this district or in this constituency, this is the party that had the most votes. So I think that actually ended up also being, I don't want to use the word roadblock because there isn't really a roadblock, but it ended up being the thing that also delayed the announcement of Mm -hmm. the final like who the winner was the president who the president-elect was because mm -hmm. uh, <clears throat> some of the political party representatives had hadn't signed off on the pink sheets and so even though the the ec might have had provisional results because obviously media was there and then um you also had a coalition of volunteers election volunteers across the country uh, by a group called Codeo. I think they have like they have thousands. I can't I can't remember the numbers, but they had definitely more than two or three thousand. It was like across the whole country. And so these different entities also had their provisional results and they were at these polling stations. So it's not like there were no results, provisional results, but because of that provision that they they put in place and the agreement with the political parties, they had to wait until the pink sheets came. And there was, there's always this, you know, there's always a saga when it comes to Ghanaian elections. <laughs> so they, the, they were supposed to scan, scan the information and send it. And the EC was battling um, cyber attacks. People were trying to hack their system. Wow. So they decided not to really, yeah, not to scan it and send it, send it yeah. on, online. And so they decided they had to. Uh, transported by road, so that means that if, like, if you're going to take a road trip from from Accra to, let's say, Tamale, which is up north, it, it'll take you anywhere from ten to twelve hours by road. So if you are going going to wait for all of all of the different polling stations to get their results and then get it to the collation center, make sure it's all validated before you send it to the EC in Accra before they announce it. So that added to the timing. Um, in the mm. past, the elections have, the last two or three elections have generally been announced for that same day, or if there was a runoff, then after the runoff, like that same evening. But mm. this one took over 72 hours, you know, over 48 hours. It was two days and maybe two and a half days thereabouts. And there were all of these issues going on around about the ECs trying to the EC is trying to rig the election. Oh, wow. Um, <laughs> uh, like, there were, there, were, there were a lot of rumors. And, of course, you had the election observers here as well. So the election observers kind of also add... I think it, it's useful to have election observers, and I agree. Um, I agree with what Aisha said about the fact that elections are not just about election day, mm -hmm. um, because too many of us think that's the case. And so even with regards to civic participation, people only go and vote and then 
after the rest, they don't care about it. It's nobody's mm-hmm. business and they complain later on, right? Um, mm-hmm. But having the election observers on the ground as well, even if people didn't necessarily trust the EC, let's say, at certain points, they might have trusted other entities who were in place. And so that kind of helped keep 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 things from, things could have easily gone south, basically. You know, it, it's, it's, it was the first time that people had to wait that long. People were impatient mm-hmm. and the, the, the ruling party was very sure they were going to win. But the numbers that, um, that were coming up were suggesting otherwise. And then, of course, you had all of the parties claiming victory, which is, they always do that anyway. Um, but mm-hmm. that just added to all of that. So, yeah, it, it was an interesting period. Oh, thank you so much. Amaya, Issa, Rieke, do you guys have anything to add? Um, I just want to add about civic engagements. You know, like that's such an important topic because, you know, for example, in Nigeria, this is Ife, by the way. In Nigeria, we have local government, we have state government, we have president, you know, federal government. And people only seem to awaken when it's time for either state or federal government elections. Mm-hmm. And the local governments, like there's some people who just run uncontested and just mm-hmm. sit pretty and just like steal money like no man's business. So yep. local government is supposed to do things like, you know, there's some roads that local government is responsible for. There's some, you know, markets that local government is responsible for the upkeep. Like little things like that, like municipality, you know, trash collection, things like that. But I can't think of a Nigerian local government that functions in a way that it, it should, you know? And... Yeah, and, you know, there's local government chairman, there are counselors, like, you know, like even, so the complete dissociation from from governance and just thinking, oh, you know, they'll say, ah, they've not done this road, though, ah, the government is stupid, oh, government has not, I'm like, you're not engaging with your government, you are, if you're not holding them accountable, if you're not demanding what you want from them, they will just continue to just behave recklessly so my my question and my passion is like how do we engage how do we increase civic engagement especially on the local government level how do we get people to care about who their local government chairmen are who their councillors are you know yeah um i think that is a i think that's an issue across the board because Many times when we think of leadership, we just think about the national level. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually an interesting initiative that started, I think it's been two years or so. It's called Odekro. And essentially what they do is they, they track, they focus a lot on parliament, right? And so they started, they started releasing these reports about um, MPs who are, let's say, most absent from Parliament. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. ones that don't even show up to work. Exactly. And they they released the names and the photos. That is And then mm. they also did, like, the MPs who contribute the most. Um, and they actually just released a report, a report that goes more into detail about the functioning of um, Ghana's Parliament um, in the last... Um, the last session and it's, it's a very interesting extremely interesting report because even as somebody who is very involved 
um, when it comes to like informing myself and others about the political landscape. I'll admit that on the parliament level, it's not the same. Like mm. the level of involvement, it's not the same. Mm. And it was very insightful for me to read some of those reports and some of the things that they came up came up with. And once they did that, you're already seeing the effects of it because the MPs don't, with the reports that they published, I think they published like the, the top 10 worst MPs or something like that. <laughs> and then they, they apparently started calling them up to be like, yo, why is my name on this list? And mm. they're like, you know what, we're going by parliament's records. So I think it, it always comes back to information. It comes back to information. Parliament could be doing an, an absolutely wonderful job. But mm. if that information does not leave the walls of parliament, nobody's mm. going to know about it. So in Uganda, Uganda, they've actually started live tweeting parliament proceedings. And, and this, this group I talked about here in Ghana, they've done a bit of that as well. But mm. in, in Uganda, they actually have an initiative and they have a collaboration with the Ugandan parliament. It's a group of young people. And they, they sit in and live tweet it. And so this is one way that, let's say, young people mm -hmm. or young people who are curious about the political landscape can at least get some information about how some of these things work. Mm -hmm. That's cool. So is this group, so this is Ife, uh, this group who tracks parliament in Ghana, are they, who are they funded by? That's another thing about, you know, activism groups and and civic engagement initiatives, they have to, money has to come from somewhere. So how are they funded? So initially, it's actually very citizen-led. It was initially okay. started by a group of young women. I don't think they had any financial backing at the time. But based off of the kind of work that they were doing, um, now they have support from, it's called, the initiative is called Star Ghana, and it's basically a pooled funding um, from major donors, so like USAID, DFID, um, there are a bunch of others, I can't remember all of them. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, so that tends to be, it's not government funding, because otherwise there'd mm -hmm. definitely be a conflict of interest on that front. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, ladies, we're reaching our one hour mark. Um, so, <laughs> so just one question, and if people have others, they can definitely pose them. But we did talk about um, and you mentioned this, Jamila, how like the youth are like becoming youth that are curious about the political landscape, how they're doing their part to be actively engaged, you know, through like sitting in on this parliament meeting proceedings and live tweeting them. Um, do you guys have any other ways or you know suggestions, you know, on how youths can be more involved when it like comes to politics? Because I mean, when I reflect on <laughs> I'm st I, I still consider myself a youth, <laughs> but <laughs> back on, back in my younger days, I used to think, you know, politics was just, it wasn't my business, it was for the grown-ups to talk mm. about. Mm. I was very apathetic about it, and also somewhat jaded as well, you know, as just knowing about, you know, levels of corruption and knowing that, you know, these people who run, they'll promise us you know, heaven on earth, and mm -hmm. once it gets into power, nothing changes, nothing happens. So there are all these cycles of lofty promises followed by, you know, broken promises. Um, so, you know, what are some things that 
could encourage the youth to become more engaged in politics and just and also you know engaging politics also involves like running for office mm-hmm. as well um because like i mean look at yaradua he's he was so not yaradua uh our current president of buhari. nigeria buhari <laughs> <laughs> um he you know he's been in power before mm-hmm. you know and so it's like you know we've seen this face before is there no other face that we can see you know mm-hmm. in running for power um so yeah. Uh, what I want to say actually, when it comes to youth engaging in 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 politics or being interested um, by polit uh, the political thing, as they say in Frank Lasho's politics, it's based on it knowing what you can do as a citizen and knowing actually being committed. Uh, because um, right now in Senegal, um, there is this coalition called. 3C coalition. It's a coalition of youth that are, that have mostly activists that have been doing a lot for their communities, helping in the way they can with their own resources, run, raising funds to improve um, their lives, be it at national level or at local level in their neighborhoods. And now they've decided that they will stand. They will have candidates that will be independent candidates for the parliament election that will be held. In July, but, um, knowing what you can offer as a citizen is important in helping you decide if you want to be involved in election um, in politics or not. And I was giving the example of this coalition called Trace Coalition Trace Coalition Three C in Senegal, where you have these youths. Most of them are activists. They've done a lot of things to improve their community, like in social, uh, socioeconomically um, improve the lives. Of people in their communities, and now they've decided that they have this coalition, and they will be running for um, in the upcoming um, legislative elections in July, and they will be having independent candidates, which is, I think, it's a good thing. So, and also in the Gambia, um, after the um, during the crisis when Jamie refused to leave, um, I saw something that I haven't seen in a while. Uh, actually, I've never seen in the Gambia. I would say, is the, the the commitment and the the engagement of youth on the ground. Because usually, when you have um, the activism, the, the the noise that people make, it's usually Gambians outside. But this was coming from Gambians inside. Um, you had the civil society initiative. Gambia has decided, and then you have this group of young people, and even. All the people who were holding the uh, the MPs accountable, they made sure that they had the the email addresses, the telephone numbers of the um, national assembly representative, and they called them and told them that this extraordinary session you are holding and you are voting, it's not on behalf of me. You should do the right thing as my representative. So that actually, they kept on calling these people. Every day, every day, everyone, you know, you ha- as a citizen, your responsibility was to call and harass, in a way, in court, your representative yeah. to make him know that what he is doing is not on your behalf as uh, a constituent. Mm-hmm. So now um, there's this movement of youth in the Gambia who actually has started campaigning and um, I hope soon they will launch their initiative, which is not too young to run. 
because they want to also take part in the in the April um, legislative elections and have representative in parliament. I think it's very good. As far as you know, what you are there for, because um, another thing to avoid is not just have youths for the sake of having them and them acting like um, the all the people that we tend to criticize that the only thing they do is come and sleep or they will not show up or they will just, you know. Yeah. So the thing is, what will they bring on the table? The ideas are great, but will they act according to what they're saying? So that's something that we will see in the future. But I think it's very, very good that more and more, you know, youth are at an early age want to do something, get into politics and do politics differently because that's very important. And I, as you know, Nigeria has the same in, initiative with youth, uh, not too young to run as well. Um, with regards to Ghana, I think that one of the, the main the main ways that young people can be involved is to volunteer. I mm. think that's that's um, I've I've seen people who who have been quite apathetic about elections or you know the democratic process yeah just agree to like lend a hand for like something like ghana decide for example they might be a videographer and they say fine i'll shoot some videos on that day on election day or they might be a graphic designer and they'll be like yes I'll, i'm happy to help out with making some graphics and through that process and being part of that process they come out being like I really want to be part of this. Like, I want to actually take politics a bit more seriously. And mm -hmm. I think also for young people, especially, since we get very distracted, I think we get very distracted unless something is pertinent to us. Mm -hmm. So there has to be a move from what, what I like to call politics. <laughs> to actually talking about issues. And mm. until we start talking about issues and exploring how our leaders are or aren't meeting their promises on various issues, I don't think it's going, it's going to be possible to hold anyone's attention for too long because mm. you get tired of the circus after a while. So like we kind of invite young people to talk about the issues that matter to them and then make it clear what the policy linkages are. I always say that policy is everything in life. Mm. Um, and for young people, what if, 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 if you say that to a young person, they're probably going to roll their eyes and be like, what are you talking about? And I'm mm. going to be like, you, you know that, that fashion you like to wear and those clothes that you think are so cool? It's a policy that brought it here. Because if it wasn't for a trade policy, it never would have gone into your country. The mm -hmm. music that you listen to, they're governed by regulations in whatever country it's, it's made in. And without those, they're also policies. Without those policies, that music probably wouldn't have been made in the way that it was made and make it available to you. you know? So I think mm -hmm. it's time that we stop talking about policy as... So we talk about it in a very theoretical sense, but in reality, it's everyday life. We need to start being a bit more, I don't know if the word is practical, but we need to bring it down to earth. We need to bring mm -hmm. all of these lofty ideas that politicians mm -hmm. talk about and bring mm -hmm. it down to the level of people. And until people can recognize that, 
there, there, there re there's really no reason to participate if you can't even understand the language that is being used to describe like some of some of these things. Another thing that I would really suggest is is just learning from different countries. So when we did the Ghana decides in 20, 2012, it, it was it was an, it was amazing because Ghana decides started in twenty twelve. The election was that same year. And on election day, more people were following Ghana Decides than were following traditional media or even listening to live radio online, especially from the diaspora. Why? Because it was very clear that we were not talking about politics. It was nonpartisan, hard facts and information. And it was like to the point. And so you get the information that you need. And when we did that, um, after we, we, we went through our Ghana Decides cycle, we had a, a Google Hangout with a bunch of other social media-based election projects. Um, I think it was Vote or Quench from Nigeria, uh, Sunu 2012 from Senegal. And we had a, just had a discussion on Google Hangout. And it was very interesting because what ended up happening was we learned from each other. So Nigeria, the case mm -hmm. in Nigeria was your your country is so big, right? So <laughs> Ni Nigeria could not do what we did here in Ghana, where we actually visited ten well nine out of ten regions, right? But what Nigeria did was we focused a lot on radio, right? And mm -hmm. we what we did was we did a lot of Twitter, mm -hmm. and and you see you you kind of see the the way that the synergies between the different projects in Sunu twenty twelve. Their start that that moment started. It was hip hop, you know. <laughs> it was hip hop that kind of spurred that movement. Um, that uh, and it was for a very very specific cause initially, which was to make sure that Abdullahi Wad, former president Abdullahi Wad, didn't change the uh, what's it called the constitution in order to run again. What ended up happening is we learned from each other's experiences, and then you have a body of knowledge that other projects coming up can draw on, right? And, and so you're not reinventing the wheel, then you can move ahead from always having to go through the same startup challenges and move and address challenges down the line. So yeah. I think that knowledge sharing element is something that definitely needs to happen because many countries are going to go through the same things that you know, Ghana went through. Hopefully, none has to go through what Gambia went through. You know, um, but but the fact is, you just never know. If if America can have yeah. someone like I'm not mentioning his name, the 45th, then <laughs> then then any so any good. country in the world can have that situation, and any African country can yeah. have such a situation. And mm -hmm. and then how do you learn from it? So. Here in Ghana, we learned from what happened in Uganda with the, the blockage of the internet, right, around mm -hmm. the election. And so we were ready. We had we sent out information to our volunteers on how to use VPNs, mm -hmm. right, so that so that if that happened, we already we were prepared. And it's because of knowledge sharing. Like we we saw what happened mm -hmm. elsewhere, and we factored that in as a possible uh, a potential challenge in our case. And young people have the skills. Like, I think mm -hmm. that's very important to say. Because uh, sometimes we think that we do not have the skill set. When you look at some of the MPs who are hmm. making laws, they're not qualified. There's no two ways about it. <laughs> yeah. If you put, yeah. if you yeah. put
put if you put a university student, a, a political science university student, who might not even be eighteen, I'll bet they'll do a better job than some of our MPs, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not it's not so much a matter of um, oh you have to be a certain age. It's more of the experience and the expertise. Like the guy who led Odekro, for example, who led the report on on Ghana's parliament. He's in his early 20s. He's a law student in his early 20s. And MPs are like calling them up to be like, can you take my name off this list? You know, so young people, young Africans, we have the skill sets. We have the skill sets. We just need to say, this is how I would like to apply it. And for some of us, some of us, yes, it's also important to talk about the policies, definitely. But some of us might not necessarily go into politics immediately. Mm. But we need to understand that it's all linked. So even if you go into business, for example, if you go into business, but you know that there's a young young person, maybe in their 30s or whatever, who could probably stand a chance to, to do something for their community, however small the community, support that person, you know, support that person. Because not everybody who's going to go into politics and not everybody's honestly fit to go into politics anyway and deal with the mm-hmm. emotional stress yeah. and everything that comes with it. But we can support each other, right? And and take a stand. And I think that's what we saw in both Ghana and, and the Gambia. We saw young young people um, as well as people from, from other age groups coming together and taking a clear stand about what they do and do not want. And that's the most important thing. Yeah. Um, Vika, already I just kind of like was making really quick bullet points um, while everyone was talking. Um, I think the very first thing is make the decision to be engaged. Like, I feel like very often as, you know, young Africans, like we can get angry, you know, the government did this, the government did that, and then like it ends there. But like you have to make the decision to be actively engaged in what's going on in your country. Um, but even more than that, though, I say read. Um, just the other day, my brother was like, have you read, you know, the bill that's about to be passed? And I was like, no. And so he sent me a link. And he was like, I mean, it's up there on the Senate's website. And we're out here reading um, things like people are budgeting uh, like 10 billion naira for like Nigeria space program. And then you like, wait, what? Like, yeah. wh- why are we going to space? You know, and these things are there and they're going to pass these bills and you know that this money is going into someone's pocket. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, going out and looking at information, what's your governor putting out, what's your local government putting out. Their website might be old and outdated, but there's information there um, upon which you have a platform to, um, you know, say something, you know, so definitely read, definitely decide to be engaged in the politics, um, but also like amongst your friends i feel like very often and i think someone said this already like making it practical for you so very often i find myself talking about politics to my friends in everything whether it's like the field that i'm in or like fashion for example like um you were saying jamila like what are those policies that cause you know the fashion industry to not progress at a certain rate what are the regulatory bodies like look for those things in your personal life and engage with your friends, engage with your families and parents. Like, guys, I know how you might think that your kids, they don't know yet, you know, they're not 
wise enough to engage your kids in these conversations. I mean, now I enjoy talking to my dad and hearing his perspective of why he thinks a certain way, having been, you know, born during the Civil War and seeing where his, you know, thoughts and opinions are and, you know, him sometimes listening to me and being like, oh, you, okay, that makes sense. Um, but engage your kids, you know, it's ne they're never too young to begin to know about where they're from and what they need to be doing in order to move their countries forward. So that's my rant. Uh, this is Ife. And to add to what Oyeka is saying, I'd say be more involved in your neighborhood. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of decisions that happen. You know, for example, there's like Landlords Association. Mm -hmm. I know in Nigeria we have like Landlords Association. We have estates. Mm -hmm. People come to an estate. This, you know, you have meetings, things like that. Just being present and knowing what decisions are taken and having that visibility where people know you and they know you as somebody who's engaged and mm -hmm. be somebody who mobilizes your community yeah mm -hmm. and you know it starts from the people who know you and your neighbors so you can build up that momentum and, and take it bigger and take it further than your immediate community and um another thing is use tools like um um non-partisan um what they what you call it like not non-profit organizations that are tracking bills in nigerian senate that they're tracking mm -hmm. projects mm -hmm. Um, they're tracking budget. So one one really good one is bud, bud, Budget, B-U-D-G-I-T. They, they recently got a grant from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. So essentially, they got like mm -hmm. a $3 million grant to keep up. What they do is that they track budgets and like they look at the Nigerian budget and be like, okay, this is what has been allocated for something. Like, yeah. is this actually, is this project being in development? And there's another one called Tracker, where uh, citizens actually track projects. And they'll be like, oh, you know, there's this project that's supposed to be happening in your community. Can you take pictures? Can you mm -hmm. look into that project and say, is it actually being developed? Are they, does it look like a three million <laughs> project? Does it, mm -hmm. you know, things like that. So just essentially being involved in your immediate community and, and using the tools available to you to, to be more engaged. All right, ladies. Last but definitely not least, because I will be remiss not to ask this, but Aisha, <laughs> any updates concerning the Gambia's like political climates that our listeners should know about? Because you know, I feel like you know one of the goals of this podcast is to promote accurate and complete narratives about our countries and just Africa as a continent. So there's definitely some incomplete, like inaccurate, like stories about the Gambia so just I mean not you don't have to speak for all of Gambia but is there anything that you want to share concerning the current political situation yeah the most um actually because there have been many fake news that went around during the crisis but the the most recent one is the fact that um it was reported that um the when president Jame ex-president Jame was leaving actually there were some chemical powder that he put in the AC of the state house. But the ECOWAS mission has actually denied that and said there was no such thing as chemical powder or whatever in the ACs or yeah. at the state house. And the only thing that they found there was pesticides for insects. Um, what I uh, any other update on the Gambia is the 
president went back to Banjo, and that was last week. And he actually formed, uh, he's in continuing to nominate the the ministers. So far, we have um, um, 10 ministers that have been sworn in. It's going to be an 18-member cabinet. But, I mean, <laughs> I've always started ranting that out of the 10, we only have one woman, and actually, um, some are saying it's the oldest cabinet we've ever had in the Gambia because these people are really old. So hopefully, the seven, the 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 eight, um, because well, anyway, let, let me say the the eight that will be coming will be younger and will be having more women. So that's what we expect. And uh, the the nominated or the appointed uh, vice president is a woman. She's yet to be sworn in. So if we have more women and youth, that will be good. Um, and there lot, lot of things to be done. Lot actually sectors, all sectors needs need reform. You know, so I just hope that they will, you know, get to work as soon as possible, and at least lay the foundations for the next uh, president, whoever it will be, because. The agreement of the coalition was that this current government will just be in power for three years and then they will organize presidential elections. So keeping our fingers crossed. But one thing I I know is that Gambians are so impatient and Gambians know that they actually, they vote count and now they won't take anything for granted and they won't allow actually anyone to even start behaving like uh, jamme or signs of you know, shadows of jamme so that's I hope the new government know that it's a different mentality now compared to what has been there all these years thanks for sharing that I'm grateful <laughs> to you ladies for uh, joining us yeah and so usually how we wrap up the episode um, is we just go around and share you know either if we're reading anything that we would like to recommend anything we're listening to or watching that we want our listeners to know about. Um, there's something fun to end the episode. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, for me, actually, what I'm reading now is the Kurun Kaunfuga um, charter. It's um, considered as one of the first charter in the world. It's kind of a human rights charter. Um, it was agreed upon during the Mali Empire in the 12th or 13th century. So that's what I'm reading on, and it it's amazing. It's in French. Wow. <laughs> it, can you can you spell that? Can you repeat that? Kuru Kangfuga Chata, K U R U K A N G F U K N. Kuru Kangfuga. It's a bit strange. Yeah, but. Yeah, but it's very, very interesting. It has women's rights, environment, you know, what are the rules of each and everyone in society. It's very, very important. I, I think uh, we have so, so many things in Africa that we tend to either forget or we don't know about. So it's always good to discover something that, that's really, really African. And how, how can we if, we, if our listeners wanted to get a copy of that, how, do, how would they get it? Um, I got it in the library, in the in a bookstore actually in Dakar. But I think it's available online um, in Amazon, on Amazon. So, Jenna, are you reading anything or listening or watching anything that you want to share? 
Um, I guess most most Ghanaians are following the vetting of our potential ministers. Mm. So that might be of some interest. I, it's, it's interesting to see how people are actually really following it and getting very like <laughs> emotional about it. I'm actually not mm. watching it, but it's always on my timeline. People are always talking about the ministers that are being vetted and the questions that the MPs are asking them and so on. So you can actually watch that uh, typically on multi-choice TV. So that's myjoyonline.com, I think it's forward slash TV. And they usually have it showing uh, during the week. Uh, but with regards to what I've been reading the past few days, absolutely mm-hmm. nothing to do with politics. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's, a, a hash, it's a hashtag, hashtag WGHS memory. So it's essentially exactly (laughs) the high school students. Well, not high school students. People are sharing their high school memories. And Mm. in Ghana, high school tends to be boarding school and tends to be single sex. So um, people are, and I I don't think I've seen this happen before, where so many people are sharing all of that online. Maybe you've had Mm. events where people reminisce together, but this is probably the first time that you're seeing it actually online and I think I don't remember which school started did that initially and then Wesley Girls um, which is one of the largest high schools uh, Mm -hmm. has been doing it for the past few days and Mm -hmm. now other schools are also jumping into the fray and it's just funny to read uh, some of the memories and the (laughs) stories and so on so so if you're looking for like some good laughs from Ghana (laughs) you know just just plug into one of those hashtags Mm -hmm. Oh man, I went to boarding school and already uh, there's so many memories. Some of them are not great, but <laughs> yeah. Isha, do you have anything to share? Mm, let me have a think. Okay. Not really. Mm-hmm. No. Ayaka, do you have anything you want to share? Um, so I'm not reading anything fantastic. You guys know this. Exams are coming up. Some studying. Um, <laughs> but I just got into this thing. Y'all don't judge. It's gospel mm-hmm. trap. Ooh. Um, I've heard of that. I don't even know how I feel. <laughs> but... Do you have an example of one? There's like a Spotify playlist of gospel trap. I'll have to. I'll have to really? Um, I didn't yeah. even know that, y'all. Yeah. So, and the funny thing is like the very first one I heard was Nigerian. Oh. Yes. So this song is called Aha, like A-H-A-A, and it's by Tim Godfrey. And I was like, dang, I really think I like this. Nice. I, don't, I don't know. I think I like it. So yeah, that's, that's what I'm into right now. Gospel trap. Nice. Yeah. Ife, do you have a thought now? Uh, no, I actually, my life is, I'm still reading the same book I, I was reading last week. Mm-hmm. Still Jermaine Kalani's new album on repeat. So, yeah, sorry guys. Nothing. Oh, hello. Nothing for me. Am I watching anything? Okay. Let me think. No. Are you guys watching Scandal? Yeah, I haven't watched Scandal since season like three. Oh, oh season six is off to... Mm. Very banging start. Okay, okay. I have to it's, revisit. It's yeah, it's great. But Gemma, you, you watch Scandal? 
Yeah, I watch Scandal. <laughs> I, I, I use it to fall asleep and to de-stress, among others. Yeah, so this is Ifeela, and I'm currently reading um, Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson, and it's a collection of poems that are autobiographical. So Jacqueline Woodson is an African-American writer, um, and typically she writes under the category, you know, young adults, but to be honest, this collection of uh, poems is can be read by adults. It has adult content in it. Not sexual <laughs> content, but like... Like it's it's she writes about growing up in the South and she talks a lot referring to like you know civil rights movement and it's just very powerful stuff that you wouldn't catch you know if you're reading it as a teenager some things you might catch but um but yes you know it's Black History Month and so I decided to kick off February reading that so and it's been really great so far but yeah thank you all so much for joining us this has been so great thank you. Thank you yeah, for having us. Our Bye. pleasure. So we can. <laughs> <laughs>